Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. I'm John Leahy. Thanks again for being with us this week on the podcast. Uh, last week, I'd like to thank my very special guest, Sean Smith, former assistant, uh, actually the former general manager of the Lowell Spinners Baseball Club. Of course, I worked for the Spinners for almost 10 years, and Sean was gracious enough to join us from down in his new office in Florida, and we had some great uh, memories uh, thinking back Back to those Lowell Spinner days, and if you'd like to check out that uh, particular episode or any episode we've done, I encourage you to check out the podcast website, which is at LeahyStorytelling.com. That's L-E-A-H-Y Storytelling.com. Every episode we've ever done is there. You can check that out. You can also uh, leave a review for any particular episode, either a written one or you can uh, rate an episode from zero to five stars. We also have uh, a way for you to contact me. Uh, via uh, phone message, there's a, a microphone, purple microphone at the lower right corner of each page, and you can leave me a voice message, and uh, there's also a blog up there and some uh, cool videos, so uh, I encourage you to check that out at LeahyStorytelling.com. Well, w- my next guest, uh, my guest on the podcast this week is a man who I've had here before, and anybody who uh, follows hockey here in New England will know uh, this man. I'm very happy to have him back on the podcast. He was with the Hartford Whalers and the Carolina Hurricanes, won the Stanley Cup down in Carolina as the radio play-by-play voice for the Hurricanes. We know him here in New England as the longtime voice of the Hartford Whalers. And uh, great to have Chuck Caton back with us. Chuck, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on this Tuesday. My pleasure, John. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, it uh, was a little while ago that we spoke last time, and I think it, this will be an exciting program once again because of you. You're an excellent inquisitor. Oh, thank you, Chuck. Well, I learned a lot from you listening to you all those years with the Whalers on WTIC, so uh, I'm very, very uh, grateful to have you back on. And, Chuck, uh, the main substance of the uh, episode this week will be classic NHL arenas of the past. There's no one more qualified to talk about that than you, uh, as you, of course, were in the NHL for many years. So that's a fun topic, and I'll tell you how uh, I got the idea for the topic in a minute. But before we get to all that, that. I, I think we should touch on the uh, passing of Bobby Hull, who uh, just a couple of days ago uh, passed away at the age of 84. Many people uh, thought of him as having the hardest slap shot uh, in the history of hockey. And uh, I know you had a chance to uh, be with Bobby when he spent a little bit of time with the Whalers, but I wonder if you could reflect back on uh, Bobby's passing. And I know you have a personalized story uh, involving Bobby. Well, there's a couple of things, really, uh, John, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about him. Uh, it started for me, uh, and actually my family as well, my wife and two boys at the time, uh, back in 1980 when we were taken to the Weathersfield uh, uh, Department of Motor Vehicle to get our uh, licenses. And back in those days, you had to take a test. We were coming, of course, from Wisconsin. Right. And it took us a few months to to get our licenses again. But at the same time, Bobby Hull had signed at the end of February with the Whalers uh, to play uh, after an illustrious career, not only, of course, with the Blackhawks, but in the WHA with the Winnipeg Jets. So uh, he was uh, needing a license as well uh, and uh, had to take the test as well. So our uh, the, the late Bob Crocker, our assistant general manager, escorted us all at the same time, to go to the DMV, and we went up the back stairs, and I'll never forget uh, Bobby Hull carrying my then one-year-old second son and then playing with my older son and him while my wife and I were taking 
the uh, driver's test, the, uh, the written test, and Bobby's, uh, you know, basically babysitting for our kids at that time at the Weathersfield office. It was a memory I'll never forget. Uh, it, um, and, and then the second thing was uh, his booming slap shot. I'll never forget scoring against Don Edwards about six days later in a game at Buffalo. And Don Edwards used to be the goalie coach mm-hmm. uh, for the Hurricanes back in the early 2000s. In fact, he was with us on that run to the finals against Detroit in 2 And I remember uh, telling Don, I said, hey, remember that goal he scored? He says, oh, did you have to bring that up again? Because Bobby <laughs> Hull just came in off the left side, let that slap shot go with that the banana blade of his like he did in Chicago. <laughs> and right. hit Edwards actually in the chest and then drove him backwards and the puck went in the net. Now that had to be, I think it was the only one, only goal that Bobby scored uh, in the nine games he played with us, but that was another memory uh, as well. And then the last thing was, uh, we had Bobby Hall night in Winnipeg where they retired his uh, number nine mm-hmm. and the Whalers were there that day. And I had a chance to do an interview with him in the broadcast booth at the old Winnipeg arena. Wow. Uh, some years later when Emil Francis was our general manager and so uh, circa mid-80s, uh, uh, and, and uh, Bobby Hall night was, was another uh, big uh, evening that they had in frozen Winnipeg back then. Uh, it was a great day. So there were a lot of different times. And I reminded him of that story, and he remembered doing that, too, uh, several years later of carrying our kids up the stairs at the DMV in Weathersfield. Wow. Now, can you imagine uh, Gump Worsley was playing goal for the North Stars back in those days, and he, he didn't have a goalie match. So, you know, he he was uh, he felt the brunt of uh, Bobby Hall slap shots coming at his head. I just can't wrap my arms uh, or my brain around that. Well, there were a lot of goalies like that. I mean, I went to a game on January 30th of 66, believe it or not, with uh, my good friend Nick Stan in Detroit and our fathers, and we went to the Blackhawk-Red Wing game in Olympia, and the Blackhawks won 5-1, to one, and Bobby Hull unleashed a couple of those slap shots at Roger Crozier at the oh, time. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And Roger Crozier never wore a mask. Neither did Hank Basson, who was the backup goalie for the Red Wings back in those days. Neither did Glenn Hall until he went to St. Louis and was playing for Chicago. Wow. So a lot, there were a lot of goalies, you got to remember, uh, that uh, never wore masks and then ended up putting them on later in their careers. Gump Worsley ended up doing that with the Minnesota North Stars. He finally put a mask on when he played for them, right. just like Eddie Jockerman did for the Rangers uh, later in his career. And then, of course, he played in Detroit after that. So there were a lot of goalies that uh, f- kind of followed Jacques Plante later in their career and put on that rudimentary mask. And I don't even know how protective it was because <laughs> it form-fitted to your face, unlike yeah. the helmet one right. and, the, and the masks you have today. I th- still think you could get injured if you got hit in the face, even with those old masks. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know? Su- I'm sure it's happened a few times to a few goalies over the years. But uh, the uh, substance of the uh, episode today, Chuck, will be classic NHL arenas of the past. And I got this idea. I was on Twitter the other day, and I noticed that someone made a comment about the old Northlands Coliseum at Edmonton. And uh, you had a response to that. So I thought, man, this would be a really cool idea uh, for an episode. And I know this is this is a passion of mine, uh, growing up uh, watching hockey in the 60s and 70s. So what I'll do is I'll just uh, rattle off these at random, and you feel free to give me any thoughts you want about uh, the arena, the city, the food, anything you want. Uh, so it'll be like kind of like word association. Uh, but uh, I-, I wanted to start with uh, the Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo, the uh, former home of the Buffalo Sabres. A lot of crazy things happened in that rink over the years. 
Well, that's right, John. And, and that arena, along with Chicago Stadium and Boston Garden, were not form-fitted, uh, 200 by 85, uh, mm-hmm. like other arenas. So uh, it was unique in that way. The corners were kind of egg-shaped like the old Olympia in Detroit. And the boards were very lively at the Memorial Auditorium. And the biggest thing I remember uh, about doing games there is the walk uh, and the elevator, or I should say the escalator ride that you'd have to take all the way to the top to get to the press box and the radio level there. And wow. there was one night uh, when I just told you about Bobby Hall carrying uh, my middle son at the time. Uh, he was our youngest son at the time. But he came to a game when he was four years old with me. The team allowed me to take him to Buffalo, and we had uh, a uh, two-foot snowstorm. Mm-hmm. So we're walking to the arena from the old uh, Hilton Hotel. It was about a three- or four-block walk, and he came with me and fell asleep at the broadcast booth. And Jerry Helper, who was the PR director of the Sabres at the time, helped me carry him back down to get on the bus after the game so we could get on the flight. (laughs) So he came to one of those games in Buffalo. The other thing I remember about that arena was we had some wacky games there against the Sabres. As you know, uh, the Whalers and the Sabres were in the same division, the Adams division. And we had a night there where my poor friend Mike Viser was the backup goalie who played one night for the Whalers in Buffalo, and he got stung for two goals in the last 31 seconds of the game. Oh, my. And we lost a heartbreaker 3-2. Three, uh, three to two. We were up 2-1. to one. I remember Mike Foligno jumping about 10 feet in the air when he scored the game-winning goal <laughs> against uh, poor Mike Pfizer. So, you know, we had some great games in there. There were a lot of brawls. Remember in those days in the Adams division, you'd have a lot of fights. You know, when any team that had old Samuelson on it, like the Whalers did, and uh, the tough guys that the uh, Sabres had at the time, there were a lot of those. So it was old-time hockey. But that that building was great. I loved the broadcast location because you were right over the ice like you were with a lot of other arenas that I'm sure you're going to talk to me about. But that that's the biggest difference. And, and, and just going to Buffalo, uh, one aside, was the first time I ever went there. Uh, the late Bill Deneen was one of our scouts, okay. uh, Kevin Deneen's uh, father. Yep. And he indoctrinated me to – Buffalo chicken wing. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, he took me to a place that is no longer there, but it was a legendary uh, chicken wings place called Sinatra's. Wow. And he and I, he says, kid, you've got to come with me to Sinatra's to have wings and a couple of beers. And I did that with uh, Bill Deneen, and I'll never forget that. That was one of the highlights of my young career going to Buffalo. And, of course, you saw your share of snowstorms out there, right? (laughs) Yes, the weather. Oh, yeah, even with the hurricanes, uh, about six, seven years ago, we were stuck in Buffalo. Remember the polar vortex? I'd never heard of the term polar vortex before. But when Kirk Muller was our coach back in 2012, uh, we were stuck in Buffalo for three days. We couldn't play the game on the assigned day because we had not only uh, you know another foot and a half or two feet of snow that debilitated the city, we were already in town, couldn't play the game, had to stay there for two days, wow. and then finally played the game, and it was uh, the temperatures were incredible, 20 below zero with the wind chill, and I'd never seen anything like that before. That happened about 10 years ago. Oh, that's crazy. The only time I got stuck was in Chicago once when we were out at Notre Dame and we had weather problems, so that's always yeah. <laughs> difficult for broadcasters. Uh, I, I want to talk about the Montreal Forum next because that's a building that uh, I regret never having a chance to see uh, as a fan. But I know you did lots of games up there, and uh, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on on the Montreal Forum experience. 
Well, Montreal Forum is uh, near and dear to my heart for one, uh, well, many reasons, basically, both good and bad. We could talk about the bad. 5.55 of overtime, April 29th, 86, Claude Lemieux, and you know what I'm talking about if you're a Whaler fan, there when we lost that game seven against the Canadians. But uh, uh, the first time I ever walked into the Montreal Forum, I met my idol in person uh, for the first time as a colleague, and that was Danny Gallivan who did the game that we played on a Saturday night, December 1st, 1979. We had played yeah. the, uh, in Springfield the night before, beat the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, went to Montreal for the first time and played a 4-4 tie. And uh, it was jeopardized at the time with a couple of minutes to go with Ricky Lee tripping Guy Lafleur coming in off the right side. Yep. And so the the Whalers had to kill off a late penalty. You remember, no overtime back then. Right. So games could end in ties in regulation. So I think it was like 2.05 left in the third period, and poor Ricky uh, back skating, he takes a – he takes a tripping penalty on the floor, so the uh, Canadians, who had won the Stanley Cup, of course, the year before, over the Rangers, were a great team. And, of course, we're an expansion team, and we had to hold off. Uh, John Garrett uh, gallantly uh, held the fort, and we kept uh, the first time a 4-4 tie. But meeting Danny Gallivan that morning at the morning skate, I walked in early, and I ran into Bob Ganey, who was the captain of the Canadians back yep, then yep. in that 79-80 season. And he came up to me and said, you're Chuck Caton, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. I said, well, how do you know me? He says, well, I happen to listen to games. We get WTIC very clearly in Montreal. And you've got to remember that in those days there were not a lot of games on television. Right. And Bob Ganey was a student of the game, and he used to stay at home and listen to broadcasts that awesome. he could pick up whether it was WBZ in Boston, whether it was WJR in Detroit, KDKA in Pittsburgh, all of those AM booming stations, John, that you're quite aware of, yep. uh, used to do all the NHL teams, and WTIC was one of them, and that signal went into Eastern Canada very strongly. And so he used to listen to the games, and so did Danny Gallivan. He lived in Nuns Island, Quebec. It's a little island in the St. Lawrence. And both of them told me that they complimented me. They thought, uh, you know, you're a good young broadcaster. We enjoy listening to you. And how do you think that made me feel? Absolutely, you know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was nirvana for me for not only Bob Ganey to say it, but for Danny Gallivan, who was one of my idols growing up uh, in Detroit, uh, watching hockey on Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, the only regret I ever had was we didn't get enough Montreal Canadian games because we'd always get Maple Leaf games uh, yes. in Detroit on the Windsor, Ontario station. But once in a while, if the Leafs weren't playing on a Saturday, uh, they would bring in the Canadians games, and that's when I got my first taste of Danny Gallivan, and I fell in love with his broadcasts right from day one. Did you Were you awestruck when you, were, when you walked into the Montreal Forum for the first yeah. time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I looked at it. It was almost like my first time going to Yankee Stadium. Uh, basically as well, the old Yankee Stadium. Uh, and I'm talking about the real old Yankee Stadium when my dad took me to a doubleheader with the Tigers back in 1964. Right. Uh, when I saw that, uh, uh, the old Yankee Stadium, the one that Mickey Mantle played in and the one that uh, Yogi Berra, you got all the less Babe Ruth. I mean, uh, I was just as awestruck with the Montreal Forum as I was because I would see games on television, like I said, and I couldn't even believe I was there. And once again, like a good old building, it had a wonderful – it wasn't a very spacious radio booth, but it was a very good radio booth right over the ice. Awesome. And that's the awesome. thing that I regret. Uh, I regret that today – 
these broadcast locations are like, and I always compared it to being in a Zeppelin. You know, you're trying to do a game from <laughs> 25,000 feet. Uh, but, boy, the Montreal Forum was intimate. It was loud. And uh, it, it was a delight to do games there. And, and, and like I said, uh, there were some good times and bad times. The only bad time was losing that game 7 and 86. But there were many more good times as well. Just being in that arena and uh, enjoying uh, the Montreal Forum. That's awesome. Uh, let me take you now to Chicago Stadium in Chicago. They called it the Madhouse on Madison. That's another That's another building that, again, I never got a chance to see, but when you watch games on TV, they blasted that loud foghorn when the Blackhawks would score. They were the first ones, I think, to have a foghorn uh, in an NHL arena, but uh, I'd love to hear some uh, some stories about that building. Well, Chicago Stadium, again, is one of my favorite places because even though I grew up in Detroit, I was a Blackhawk fan as a kid, tying in again with Bobby Hall. Again, it was a fantasy for me, as I think I wrote on Twitter to get to know Bobby Hall uh, because I admired his play with Stan Makita back in those eras, uh, Tony Esposito, Glenn Hall. I mean, you go down the list. But when you watched a game in Chicago Stadium, first of all, from the broadcast end of it, again, a wonderful booth, but here's the problem. Uh, Chicago Stadium was so ancient, there were no elevators. You had to walk up. uh, I think it's 230 stairs to go up carrying (laughs) my equipment because I didn't have an engineer back in those days. I had to do my own engineering my first year. And the the first time I was in Chicago Stadium, again, was a very memorable one because uh, it was, I think, the third game of my career in a regular season setting. And we played at that time, I think, a 3-3 tie or a 4-4 tie against the Blackhawks. And I had spent, since I was away, and my wife and kids were still in Madison, Wisconsin, before we had bought a house in uh, Connecticut, I got to go home. They let me go to Madison for the day before, and then I drove in for the game. Okay. Uh, with a good friend of mine who drove me there, a guy uh, that has now passed away, Bob Bonesack, who was a ba- very big hockey fan, one of our friends from uh, uh, Wisconsin. And so I uh, came, wa- walked into Chicago Stadium for the first time. And uh, the thing I always liked uh, in the old days was the old clock. Remember with the hands? Like oh, Boston yeah. Garden had. Right. Boston, Detroit, and Chicago had the same old time clock. Well, it had gone by that time that I started, but, uh, uh, but again, a smaller building, a building that didn't uh, conform to the 200 by 85 foot, uh, parameters that we see in all the buildings today. Uh, so again, and again, the noise, but again, everybody knows what happens before the game starts. The national anthem plays. Oh yeah. And the fans go, you almost cannot hear the singer and the organist. And I remember the old Chicago Stadium organ was unique. It was the old uh, uh, Wurlitzer pipe organ that would uh, he'd be on one end. Al Melgard was the uh, original organist in my day. Then it was Nancy Faust, who you might remember did White Sox uh, organist uh, right. uh, games, too, at uh, White Sox Park. Yep. She did it after that. And that organ, when, when they played the organ, the press box actually shook from the air, you know, and, and that's another thing that made that memorable for me, too. When you're at that radio level, when they played the organ and then the fans were starting to cheer during the national anthem like that, it was it, it just gave you goose pimples. Do you remember when the uh, the Iraq War started in 1991? The NHL All-Star Game was in Chicago that year, and they, yeah. they did the uh, the anthem 
And I have never heard anything like that in, in terms of crowd excitement. And, and it was really special. Oh, it really was. Yeah, I think you're talking about the 91 All-Star game. Right, right. Yeah. right. And I remember it being on NBC, and Marv Albert was doing the game, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So yep. I remember watching it, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, with American flags flowing and uh, the noise was deafening. I mean, I, I would have loved to be there that day. Absolutely. Uh, next one, Chuck, I have on my list is the Philadelphia Spectrum in Philadelphia. Flyers won a couple of cups in the early 70s, and uh, the Philadelphia Spectrum certainly, I'm sure, was a special place. It was a very special place because, again, uh, you can picture a young Chuck Caton walking with equipment of another 300 stairs, uh, no elevator again in that place to get to the radio level. Mm. And, uh, and that to meet uh, uh, Gene Hart, who was the uh, flyer broadcaster who later had a heart attack, and he ended up going back downstairs to do a game. Mm. He didn't, have to, uh, he didn't uh, have to go up all those stairs as the years went on. Uh, but that was a wonderful broadcast location, too. Uh, you were kind of cramped in there with the, uh, the writers and other, I don't want to call them hangers-on, but there were other guests of uh, the late Ed Snyder that would be sitting up with us and cheering. And I thought that was very unprofessional at the time <laughs> yeah. to hear that. But I, but I know how passionate Philadelphia fans are. Just ask the Eagles fans now, oh, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So, but, so I accepted that. But the biggest memory, John, for me about the Spectrum was uh, the final game. Do you okay. realize that we played the final game in the Philadelphia Spectrum? Oh, wow. It pre- yeah, it was a preseason yeah. game between the Hurricanes and the Flyers the year they closed the Spectrum. And we played in the final game. And one of the big reasons we played in that final game was our captain was Rod Brindamore who was, of course, uh, a a very revered Philadelphia Flyer. So it stood to reason that we would play the last game at the Spectrum. It was a preseason game, uh, granted. uh, And the only, uh, well, one of the great things about it was that um, the game was not on television, so there were only two broadcasts, the Flyers radio broadcast and our radio broadcast. So I got to do the game from the original lower press box that I just referred to when Gene Hart, after he had his heart uh, issue that he worked from. So both of us were down there. Uh, actually, Gene had passed away. It was actually Jim Jackson who was doing the game for the Flyers back then. And and we were able to go to the lower press box, which was great because you only had to walk up the uh, basically uh, the first level to get to it. Right. But playing the last game at the Spectrum, they gave us a little memento, a coin. We were there also for Bobby Clark night. That's okay. another one that uh, – yeah. Uh, that was, but the Spectrum was a great place. I, again, uh, the the sign man. Remember the guy that would come up with the signs? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And and it was an intimidating place. And it took the Whalers about four years to win a game there. And I'll never forget Greg Millen dancing on the tabletops at the bar at the hotel <laughs> after we had won. Because back then we didn't charter to come home. Oh yeah, we had to come home the next day. And it was, I think, in the eighty. I want to say it was the. 82-83 or 83-84 season. It took us all that time to win a game at the Spectrum against the Flyers. Uh, even though they had two chances, the Whalers had two chances to break their 35-game unbeaten string my first year and uh, just couldn't get it done. They played a, a 4-4 tie, I think, the day after Christmas at the Springfield Civic Center. But uh, 
the Spectrum was a special place, that's for sure, with a lot of great memories. Yeah, and of course, here in Boston, we saw a lot of good basketball games there over the years with uh, Larry Bird and Dr. J and uh, Johnny Most in the uh, broadcast booth. So a yeah. uh, lot of lot of great uh, games in Philadelphia over the years, absolutely. Yeah, yeah wasn't that the, was the PA announcer uh, Zinkoff or something yep. like that? Yeah, Dave Zinkoff. Go, Irving, that's <laughs> yeah. what I remember for Dr. J. Uh, Absolutely. You know, why do we have personality? Now we have yellers and screamers, by the way, as an aside. Right. PA announcers. Ridiculous. Right. Yeah. I hate that. Except for our good friend Joe Tollison at Madison Square Garden. He's the only guy uh, with any decorum, in my opinion, as a PA announcer. Just Inter- my opinion. Interesting. You know? Interesting. Yeah. Well, we have to touch on the Boston Garden because this podcast emanates from Massachusetts every week, my home here. So, uh, Chuck, Whalers and Bruins, two New England teams. You did many games in the Garden. I remember the uh, radio and TV overhang. You were uh, you were right uh, above ice level. <laughs> yes. I love the Boston Garden, not only because of the rivalry of the Whalers and the Bruins for all those years, but the fact that, that you you hit it on the head. The broadcast location, you couldn't have a better place to do a game. Yeah. You were right over the ice. The only problem I ever had was our engineer, Charlie, Charlie Carroll, who was a staunch union guy, uh, said, you know, we, you know I, I, as I said, I used to do my own engineering, but I couldn't do it in Boston. They had such a strong electricians union there that i had to hire charlie carroll now there was nothing against the man he was a wonderful human being except here's the problem he must have hated hockey john because he would set your equipment up and then he'd start reading the newspaper during the game and you couldn't get his attention wow the crowd noise was too hot or something he could care less once he set you up and he knew he was going to get paid he didn't help you, you know, and we didn't have stick noise back then. You know, you didn't have the effects mics uh, because right. not a lot of games were on television. We didn't have access to that. So I, he had to string down a crowd noise mic, and sometimes he'd have it so hot that I would be overridden when I'm calling a goal, oh, especially wow. when Boston scored, obviously, when the crowd would go crazy, <laughs> and he, he could care less. That's the only <laughs> negative about Boston Garden was poor Charlie Carroll. Great guy. Horrible engineer. He couldn't care less. Oh, you know? wow. Oh, but, but, and I hate to out him because I'm probably sure he's passed away by now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was that was crazy. And then there was the night that Ray Bork came back, game seven. Uh, you know, when he got injured, Grant Jennings uh, uh, hit him behind the net in game one, and he never came back till game seven uh, in the 1990 playoffs. We should have beaten the Boston Bruins that year. I don't know if yep. you recall that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but, but Bork came back in Game Seven, and they won the game three to one. And we played a very innocuous game, but that was another memory of the Garden. And then my good friend Nate Greenberg, you you may know him very uh, intimately. He's the PR director and director of communications of the Bruins. Yeah, wonderful human being, and uh, he uh, always treated us well. Uh, my wife got to come to games. Uh, friends got, and he would let us sit, let them sit in the press box. Awesome. Uh, at these games. And, yeah. uh, you know, once in a while, uh, uh, you know, then Nate would do that. And I think he was one of the most accommodating PR men. Uh, and, of course, it was the Times, too. So that made Boston Garden very special. Harry Sinden to see uh, Tom Johnson in the press room, you know, the assistant general manager. All of these, they're playing cards, smoking cigars in the press room. <laughs> Something you can't even do anymore. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was so much. And then the org, remember the organist used to be in the stands in the corner near that press box side? Yeah, that was... on the Where the media room was. 
and uh, him warming up, uh, just tremendous. And then walking up, I mean, you know, you had the smell of hot dogs and hamburgers, uh, you know, permeating the building even before the game started. It just was a tremendous atmosphere. I loved doing games at Boston Garden. Another band box, so to speak, right? Because it wasn't yeah. 200 by 85 for the ice surface. Yeah, the organist you're referring to is John Kiley, who uh, John Kiley, exactly, right? Who did the games at Fenway as well with the Red Sox. In fact, I think he was the organist for all the the Boston sports teams. But yeah, uh, I grew up in this city, so I, I've been been there many times and. Uh, well, the, the memories just uh, keep flowing back. So, uh. yeah. How about the locker rooms, though? I mean, I remember going into the visiting locker room, and it was nothing to to write home about. That's for sure. They they didn't take care of uh, of the visitors at all in Boston Garden. Yeah, and you'd have rats in the bathroom. You know, you had to duck and dodge the rats that were uh, yeah. uh, scurrying around. So, uh, <laughs> certainly had well, it. It's had character. Yeah, and, and, you know, how about this one too? Here's a reminder. Uh, speaking of Boston Garden. We had uh, a Pier 6 brawl the year Mike Milbury was coaching the team for the Bruins. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember Pat Verbeek beating up with his hockey stick during a brawl at, uh, right at the benches. He was hitting Eric, the, uh, the stick attendant of the Bruins, with the butt end of his hockey oh, stick man. during a brawl. It was the day <laughs> after Thanksgiving. We had a couple of years where we played on the Friday after Thanksgiving at mm -hmm. Boston Garden, that matinee game they'd always play. Right, right, uh, right. And then one of, one of the games, uh, Pat Verbeek, who's now, you know, got a lot of decorum now. He's the general manager of the Anaheim Ducks now, mm -hmm. right? So, yep, yep. Uh, so, But he, he, I think him, this was an early 90s game where, uh, you know, we almost had a Pier 6, well, we did have a Pier 6 brawl and a riot uh, in Boston Garden. Those, there were emotional games, that's for sure, which added to the... Uh, uh, the, the mystique and the uh, the enjoyment of being at Boston Garden. Absolutely. We're talking with Chuck Caton, former longtime radio voice of the Hartford Whalers and the Carolina Hurricanes. This is airing it out. Files from Leahy's broadcast booth. Uh, Chuck, I'm going to take you to Bloomington, Minnesota for the next arena, the Met Center, which of course uh, has long been replaced, but that area out there, also where the Twins ballpark was, is now the area where the Mall of America is. So Bloomington, Minnesota, love to get your thoughts on the Met Center? Well, you know, for one of the more, quote, modern buildings, I loved going to Minnesota. Uh, we used to stay right at the Marriott next door to the arena and made it very convenient to walk over to the games, especially when it was 30 below zero uh, in the middle of January going to games there. And I uh, loved doing games there, too, because they had a very Spartan press box and radio booth. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it was just basically a table, a long table of the length of the rink. And uh, I started out, actually, uh, uh, the first Whaler game ever was in uh, the Met Center uh, back uh, on the 11th of October, 1979, if I recall. We lost that game 4-1. to one. Gordy Roberts, who would later become a North Star, scored our only goal in that game. So, But we, we were in a press box setting on the opposite side, the same side as the benches, and then they moved us over to the uh, regular press box on the other side of the ice mm -hmm. where we were along with a table. It was very comfortable, and the biggest thing I remember, uh, you know, you want to talk about culinary things, they had the best press meal in the NHL at that time. Wow. Uh, Dick Dillman, uh, whose daughter now is a writer in California, uh, uh, Dick Dillman was the PR director 
And, of course, they now name the uh, PR Director of the Year Award the Dick Dillman Award, the Dick Dillman oh, okay. Award. Yep. Uh, and Dick Dillman was one of the best PR people. Like I said, with Nate Greenberg, well, I'll tell you what, you had some tremendous people uh, helping us out back in those days as PR people. I mean, they're all robots today, let's face it. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're scared of their own shadow with their managements because things have changed. But back then, Dick Dillman ran the best press room press meal and 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 he was one of the pioneers that gave you your press notes the day before the game if you were in town you got press notes to prepare for your broadcast oh that's awesome yeah and and he was so thoughtful he was the first guy to do that uh in the nhl and uh so it was a very comfortable setting it might have been uncomfortable outside with you know freezing temperatures but that building and i remember the colored seats you know the green uh, of all the seats uh, was uh, you know was very very uh, unique in itself, and uh, and Al Shaver I can't uh, mention uh, the uh, uh, Met Center without talking about my good friend Al Shaver who still is uh, kicking and alive and kicking in Vancouver Island right now as an actor uh, with local plays he was the voice of the North Stars and he was one of the most exciting and best broadcasters I'd ever heard and. Uh, I used to listen to him on uh, WCCO as a kid growing up in Detroit, and uh, to meet him, he was just a wonderful man as well. He's part of that whole Met experience. Yeah, we met his son Wally uh, when we were out there with Merrimack. We went out on a uh, out there on a. Uh a tournament uh, at the Mariucci Arena in uh, Minneapolis. Yeah. And again, that was in January. There's no colder place in the world than Minneapolis in January. But uh, yeah, we met Wally when we were out there, and uh, he had some great stories about his dad. So you're absolutely right there. Yeah, yeah. Wally's a good guy. And uh, I know he's always trying to break in, was trying to break in to become the North Star broadcaster a couple of times there. But uh, yeah, I think he's doing go for hockey, like you say now. Yeah. But yeah, his dad was terrific. Al Shaver. Uh, uh, was an exciting broadcaster, old time Canadian hockey announcer. You know, he, yeah. uh, with that high pitched voice and the great enthusiasm. And he was a terrific guy. And and, the, and another memory I had was the '89 draft was in Minnesota. The, okay. It was the year that the uh, Whalers drafted Bobby Holik, and that was in Minnesota. And I was covering the draft in those days for WTIC. They would uh, pay me to go out there for the draft every year. Okay. And I remember sitting in the press box with Al Shaver. And uh, we were just enjoying the draft, watching it from the press level at the Met Center. And again, just to spend an entire afternoon with Al was uh, was just uh, a memorable experience. And I'm glad he's still uh, kicking and uh, doing well and uh, going into his second career there as an amateur uh, actor. Awesome. Uh, Chuck, uh, the next arena I want to ask you about is the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland. It was uh, shaped like a big potato chip, if you saw it from the sky. <laughs> yeah, and... the inverted paraboloid, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to tell you, you know, I, I've expressed to you uh, how much you you impressed me and how you, you impressed on me uh, the uh, desire to be an NHL, well, a hockey broadcaster. Uh, but the other guy also that was in that group was Ron Weber, who did the Capitals game. For, for many years. So uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that very unique uh, building in our nation's capital. Well, I, I would love to say a lot of positive things about it, but uh, I, I'm going to struggle to do that because there were so many things. I mean, it was a, a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to do uh, 41 games there like Mr. Weber did for years. Yeah, yeah. I give him a lot of credit. Here's the reasons. 
we used to be have a table, a makeshift table in the middle of the stands. Uh, you'd have cold air blowing on you from uh, the ceiling, dropping down. And I actually got sick several times doing games there. Wow. Where you, yeah, and I had to wear a coat. Believe it or not, you're in an arena. They didn't have a, a, a radio booth. Uh, we were right next to each other, Ron and I, and we're right in the seats, and the cold air is blowing right on you. And it wow. was not a very comfortable place to broadcast a game, I, I'm sorry to say. The only positive I can take from it, and again from a culinary standpoint, was they had the best popcorn in the <laughs> National Hockey League at the time. I'm not kidding you. The way they buttered their popcorn in, the, in their popcorn maker – they had the best po- – and, and I don't you're normally eat anything before a game, especially popcorn because the kernels could get stuck in your throat. Right. And many a time it did when I was doing – I regret some of the times that I would buy that big uh, popcorn uh, bag, but I would eat it because I wouldn't eat in the press room because they had terrible food in the press room. Oh, boy. In, in the cap center. I hate to say it again, but those who were there know – the, the biggest thrill for me was meeting Larry King there in the press room once. Oh, wow. He used to go yeah. to Capitals games uh, quite frequently back in those days. Mm-hmm. And Larry King was always at Capitals games. Mm. Uh, he was a big hockey fan. I don't know if a lot of people knew that. Uh, that was a highlight. And and, and also, uh, but the popcorn was by far the best thing. It was a dark, dingy building, though, if you'll remember. Yeah. And they turned yeah. the lights down. Yeah. But the lighting, I, I would have to say the positive there was the lighting was probably as bright as the Montreal Forum. Oh, wow. They had tremendous lighting at Capitol Center. Mm-hmm. That was the one thing, and, and, and uh, it, was a, it was a good place to watch the game, but not from a broadcaster standpoint because it was so cold. Uh, that cold air blowing on you, I'll never forget. I, I almost got pneumonia once. Oh, man. Uh, getting, uh, you know, I, I never really liked doing games there, but uh, – uh, you know, it was it was a it was a nice building, but not one of my favorites. All right, I got to ask you about a couple of arenas in California here. Uh, one of them is the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Uh, I, I worked for the Sharks for for uh, a couple of years, three years as a matter of fact. And uh, the Sharks' uh, first experience in the NHL was at the Cow Palace before moving downtown San Jose. And I'll tell you, that place had a unique history, right? Because you, you'd walk in there and you'd, you'd smell the livestock. And, and they used to have rodeos in there, and uh, yeah. that, that building has a lot of history. Yeah, it really did. Uh, I know that, uh, again, the press box, as you'll recall, was way back and low right. in that building. And uh, I don't know how the heck even the uh, San Francisco Warriors even played there years ago, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Rick Barry and everybody. Not, again, one of my favorite places uh, to do a game because you were so far back. The angle was bad. You couldn't see much on the near side. Uh-huh. If the puck was on the near side along the boards, you couldn't even uh, uh, tell who had the puck. Uh, I do know that uh, uh, the first time we ever played there, I think uh, Goodrow had a hat trick in that game yep. against us, uh, and that was our first baptism, 91-92. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, meeting Dan Rusinowski, who has been there from day one. He's their radio yep. broadcaster. Yep. Uh, started there. He was in New Haven, of course, uh, before that. And so it was nice to see Danny all that. But uh, the Cow Palace, again, uh, it was not one of my favorite places. Uh, but it was always good to see Dean Evison when he played. Our former oh, yeah. player uh, yeah. was a uh, was a San Jose Shark back in those days. And uh, so, I, you know, I guess Daly City itself, I can't even remember where we stayed uh, when we were out there. But uh, 
the Cow Palace was, uh, I remember Arnold Dean, uh, the former sports director of the, uh, the late Arnold Dean, he was a wonderful human being of WTIC. He came out on a trip with us, uh, and he said, what is this broadcast location? I said, Arnold, you're going to do color with me tonight. It's all yours. You can do the game from that angle. You're better than I am. So that was what I, I thought about uh, Daly City and the Cow Palace. Well, as we move south in California, i got to ask you about the Great Western Forum in Inglewood, California, where the Kings uh, played for many years. And uh, that was an interesting place because the neighborhood wasn't the greatest, right? Players used to get robbed there. Well, they did. Yeah, Eaglewood was not exactly a great place for the forum, but you were kind of isolated in a way. As long as you were there in the daytime, you were okay, I suppose. I, I remember that we'd always take a, a shuttle from the hotel. They would take us to the arena for the game, and I liked doing games there, even though uh, you were in the stands there, too, but they had writers and broadcasters. Uh, Bob Miller uh, had a, uh, a booth that was enclosed lower than we were. We were up with the writers, but we were in the stands once again, which was very unique. There wasn't really a press box like there is at, I don't know what they call the arena now, crypto.com or something, yeah, the yeah. old Staples Center. Now, yeah. that was a wonderful facility. Uh, that is one. But the, but the forum, you were in the seats, and I know Bob Miller shares many funny stories uh, uh, with me about that, and the funniest thing about that building uh, there were two things. Gordy Howe got checked into the penalty box by J.P. Kelly the first time we were there. Uh, we played the Kings in December of 79, and we played a 2-2 tie. And I remember Dave Keon giving up, losing his man for the tying goal uh, with about 30 seconds to go, and he refused. He wanted to retire after that game. He was so upset at himself that he wanted to retire. And Don Blackburn, our coach at the time, said, no, you can't. You can't be serious. And Dave Keon said, no, I'm dead serious. I don't have it anymore. I can't help this team. And, and, and of course, Blackburn and Jack Kelly had to uh, talk him off the cliff. And, of course, he didn't retire for another couple of years. But that game in L.A. was uh, memorable for that reason. And that building, because at the end of the game, Bob Miller would take me back to the hotel afterwards, but we would be able to – go into the press room after the game and uh, and uh, have popcorn and maybe a beer uh, on our sandwich. They, they left their press box open after the game for the writers okay. to kind of unwind yep. before they went home. And, and that was the neatest thing about there. And that's the first time I met Janet Gretzky was in that press room. Wow. When, when Wayne played there in 1988, she came into that press room. Wayne came in to see the writers afterwards. He was always a great guy with the with the media, and and his wife was there because the wives' room was across the street or across the hall from the press room, which was under the stands at uh, Great Western Forum. So that was another uh, kind of benefit that we had. We'd be able to eat some popcorn and maybe have a beer. And then Bob would drive me back to the hotel, and then he'd go home. So wonderful memories in that building, too. Awesome. Uh, a couple of more quick ones before I let you go, Chuck. Uh, let me uh, ask you about the St. Louis Arena in St. Louis. Blues hockey is just a wonderful experience to watch in St. Louis. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, the St. Louis Arena. Yeah, St. Louis Arena, again, one of my favorite places to do a game. And uh, the press box was in a good spot. The radio booth was in an excellent spot. And uh, when you looked to your left, you saw one of the uh, – uh, the iconic broadcasters of all time and one of my idols, Dan Kelly. And uh, yeah. 
and doing games there were, was was a tremendous experience. It, there, the echoing of uh, because such a high ceiling and it was a wooden ceiling, so the noise would just bounce when the Blues would score a goal. You couldn't hear yourself. Okay, uh, it was so loud. It was a it was a wonderful place to watch a game, and the most memorable game that I uh, ever did there. And poor Greg Millen's going to probably kill me if he hears this one. Huh. Rob Ramage had the puck at center ice and faked dumping it into the corner. Millen assumed he was going to dump the puck into the corner, so he leaves the net, goes to the corner, and Ramage flips the puck high in the air and into the empty net. Wow. <laughs> That's my biggest memory <laughs> of the St. Louis arena, uh, besides the fact that Mike Liute used to kill us until he joined us. Right, uh, right. You know, he was a great goaltender. That 80-81 season for the Blues when Red Berenson was coaching and won Coach of the Year, uh, they were terrific with Sutter, Federko, and uh, Babich, and just a wonderful team they had. And, of course, later on, uh, a young Rod Brendamore uh, was there, played uh, 89-90 season against us, and whoever knew that he would become one of the best coaches in the NHL now uh, after seeing him in St. Louis Arena. uh, But so there were a lot of good memories. Tommy Woodcock, our trainer under Emil Francis, uh, uh, used to uh, uh, have a lot of friends there in St. Louis, and we loved going there because there was a uh, a little place that we could have a nice hamburger on the day of the game. Again, it's all about food. You wanted culinary stuff. Yeah. We went to a place called the White House uh, right next to the arena. As soon as practice was over, he had the best burgers there. He would take me there, and then we would go back to the hotel uh, the day of the game, and uh, – and it was a terrific play. We've met people like the late Bob Plager would go there. Yep. Jimmy Roberts, who was a good friend of ours. He used to coach the Whalers. And uh, St. Louis has a lot of soul, you know, a lot of heart. It's it's a, just a wonderful place. And it's just too bad they're not playing well now. Yeah. But they, at least they won the Stanley Cup several years ago. So those people should be happy about that. But the old St. Louis arena? terrific place to do a game awesome chuck well i have one more on my list and uh okay. they have um, they many people have called this the holy grail of hockey and i'm talking about maple leaf gardens in toronto it still stands today of course the leafs have moved uh, uh to the newer arena they've been uh, at the uh place in Toronto, the new place in Toronto, and the, the name yeah. of the arena escapes me uh, at yeah, the moment. Scotiabank Place. Scotiabank Place. Center, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I wonder if you could just uh, take us back to doing games at Maple Leaf Gardens and what a hallowed uh, arena that is. Well, again, wonderful memory. I mean, you're hitting on a lot of great memories for me, uh, John, because the first time we ever played there was on a, a Halloween night in 79, and both Gordy Howe and Dave Keon made their first appearances in those arenas. It was especially significant for Keon, obviously, who had played in Toronto. So our first game in Toronto was uh, a, a victory, and both Gordy Howe and Dave Keon scored in that game. Uh, and the Whalers won it. And, and, but the press box, again, nothing to write home about. Uh, again, you had to walk up uh, uh, you know, several hundred stairs and uh, get up there, and then you were right next to your – uh, your, your home broadcaster. They, they didn't think to separate us, so you only have a glass partition between me and uh, later, of course, Joe Bowen, who is still doing Leaf games. Right. And both of us are not exactly quiet when we do a game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're kind of boisterous in our own way. And our broadcasts would leak over each other's oh, wow. broadcast. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if something ex- 
sighting was happening, you basically heard two of us doing the game on both stations. In stereo, so, yeah. Not good, <laughs> yeah. Not, not a good thing. But the building itself was great. First time I ever walked into that building was when I was a kid. Uh, we went to uh, uh, Toronto in 1967. I was 15 years old. And I begged my parents, can I just go out on my own here for a minute? And they said, yeah, go and take a walk. So I walked to Maple Leaf Gardens. Yep. And I talked to uh, one of the ushers, and he let me. I said, sir, all I want to do is come in and see Foster Hewitt's broadcast booth. Can yep. I just come in? It was, you know, it was in the middle of the summer. And, they, and so he said, okay, I'll let you in. And so he let me in. All I did was look. I wish I had a camera back then. You know, we didn't have video, you know, cameras back on our phones. And I just looked up there and saw the big SO logo. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of their sponsors was Imperial SO. And I saw the broadcast, the gondola that he always talked about on Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah. And as a 15-year-old kid, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, someday I want to do this. And, oh, uh, wow. So the first time I walked to the Maple Leaf Gardens, I saw the gondola there. And, of course, Foster was gone by then. But uh, uh, his, his son, Bill Hewitt, was working in 79. And, uh, again, a, a wonderful place because it, it had that memory for me as a 15-year-old walking into Toronto for the first time. So that coupled with Gordy Howe and Dave Keon scoring and uh, the Whalers winning their first game ever in there, terrific memory. And as a Bruins fan, I remember Daryl Sittler uh, scoring six goals and four assists on the Bruins <laughs> one go. night. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, and, 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 a, and a final note, Stan Abodiak, wonderful PR director, yep. nice guy. I think he must have cleaned Harold Ballard's apartment. And, of course, Harold Ballard lived in Maple Leaf Gardens, if, oh, if yeah. people okay. don't know that. Yeah. And so, but Stan, I'm kidding when I'm saying he probably cleaned his apartment, but Stan Abodiak was probably uh, the, the most genteel individual you'd ever meet, but that press room was terrible. Never <laughs> ate in that press room. They had finger sandwiches. This is a typical Harold Ballard thing. Uh. You cut out the, uh, 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 the bread, and, uh, and you have little diamond-shaped, like, Two-inch by two-inch sandwich, finger sandwiches. That's what you had in the press room for the game. <laughs> Harold Ballard was on a budget, I guess, and Stan had to uh, adhere to it. Yeah, you'd expect so much more out of Maple Leaf Gardens, right? Oh, I know. Yeah, it was crazy. And then, yeah. Uh, so, but again, great memories uh, in that building. And, of course, uh, uh, Paul Morris, the inimitable voice uh, of the PA, you know, Toronto goal scored by number 14, Kia. You know, and, and <laughs> it was, I, I don't know if I did it justice, but he was, and I actually interviewed him once uh, for a between period feature, Paul Morris, the late Paul wow. Morris. He was the electrician, and they, they uh, since he was the electrician and knew how to run the microphone, yeah. they made him the PA announcer. <laughs> he did it for like 40 years. <laughs> but it was, I remember as a kid, it was great because, uh, you know, you know, it's not like these screamers that I talked about before that, you know, the PA announcers were horrible today outside of Joe Tollison in, in New York um, and maybe other one or two other exceptions. Paul Morris was dignified, and it would be simple. Back in the old days, uh, you know, Toronto goal scored by number 14, Keon. You know, oh, you never yeah. say Dave Keon. Remember, it was always <laughs> or like uh, Boston penalty number four or, you know. <laughs> yeah. it, it was, I just 
love that. I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm nuts, but uh, I love Maple Leaf Gardens. A lot of different reasons, Paul Morris being one of them. You know, now that you bring it up, I can think back to those public address announcements, watching them on TV, and, and you're almost a dead ringer for the guy. You really well, thank you. I, I might have a second job. I'll have to call somebody. <laughs> Let me get Brendan Shanahan on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Chuck, I think we hit on a, on a good combination of, uh, of, of, of arenas here. We, we talked about some of the original six ones. We got some of the other ones in, and, and time is just not going to be uh, enough for us to hit uh, any more. But, you know, I'd love to have you back, and we can, we can hit the ones that we didn't hit uh, next okay. time around. But uh, Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that, John. Well, Chuck, uh, you know, uh, again, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know I took up a lot of it. I apologize for that, but uh, it was a wonderful wonderful conversation i know hockey night in hartford is looking forward to this episode we're going to have it um, we're going to have it published uh tomorrow as we're recording this on tuesday but chuck again thanks so much for your time i truly appreciate it you're one of the all-time greats and uh, i can't thank you enough thank you john it's a pleasure at any time i'd be happy to do it and for anybody that's listening to this podcast i hope you enjoyed it Thank you very much, Chuck. All right, Chuck Caton, our very special guest. We invite you to stay with us. We'll have another episode coming up next week, airing it out, files from Leahy's broadcast booth. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, hockey fans. I'm Dan Rusinowski. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Incorporated is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org. 